Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Paul Matsko, the technology and innovation editor at libertarianism.org and author of the new book, The Radio Right, how a band of broadcasters took on the federal government and built the modern conservative movement. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Paul. You've been a, a host, but now you're a guest. Thank you. It's a real privilege to be with you guys. The American conservative movement, a lot of people think about like Rush Limbaugh, for example, as like the pillar of right-wing radio. And of course, he was very important to the 1980s and I think important to a lot of things that have happened now. But your book is about how there was a similar movement even before Rush Limbaugh that not a lot of people talk about. Yeah. I mean, for sake of comparison – uh, some of these broadcasters in the 1960s were listened to by 20 million people a week, which is as many as Rush Limbaugh, despite the U.S. population being significantly smaller. So in, in relative terms, they had an even larger audience. And yet uh, they've almost completely disappeared from our histories of the 60s and from kind of our you know, modern consciousness. Who were these? I mean – other names, I, of course, there are yeah. names, but like I did find it amazing because I know something about this era, and I'd never heard of any of these people. Yeah, we're not. I, I think it's because you know you, Aaron, and I. I mean, we make fun of uh, in L org. We make fun of Aaron for being the old man of the group, but none of us are old enough. Um, they, you know, their peaks in the '60s, and so unless you were born in. At, at the outside, like mid to late 50s, you're not going to have heard of them probably because the government shut them down by the 70s. Um, it's people like Carl McIntyre, Billy James Harkis, Clarence Mannion, uh, uh, Fulton Lewis. Is a, in the, you know, there's a, a dozen that are airing on more than 100 radio stations nationwide. So it's this whole kind of loose network, um, kind of similar to the way in which we say talk radio today. And you might think of a handful of the big guys, like, I don't know, once upon a time, Glenn Beck or Rush Limbaugh. But you you kind of thought of them as a something of a unit, a loose kind of conglomeration of, of right-wing radio broadcasters. The same thing in the 60s. And if, if you're of a certain age, I mean, every time I talk about this book at some public presentation – I'll have someone, you know, come up to me afterwards and say, I remember I was six. I would go over to my grandparents' house and they'd turn on the radio and I would hear Carl McIntyre and like they couldn't stand him, but we listened to him anyways. We like hate listened to him. Um, and people do that with Rush Limbaugh today. So it's kind of not, you know, not surprising folks were doing that in the 60s. So at the time that this, the conservative radio was rising, so just let's say just right before its pretty meteoric rise, what did the American conservative movement look like? Like what was the kind of audience that these guys were coming in to talk to? That's a great question. I mean I, I think the, to get a sense of the political landscape, um, we have to go back to a time when something we take for granted, the presence of conservatism as a major political force was um, all but extinguished. And when I say conservatism, I mean a particular kind of conservatism. Uh, political scholars will call it fusionist conservatism because it fused together um, anti-communism with suspicion of the state, with a kind of a libertarian laissez-faire approach to the economy, with some social conservatism, kind of Catholic traditional social conservatism and new Christian right um, uh, stances on issues. That fusion... Uh, was invented really in the late 50s and 60s. Prior to that, in the early 50s, 
an older style conservatism that shared some of those impulses, but not all of them. It was uh, it was kind of formulated a little bit differently, but there there is some overlap. Uh, had all but been extinguished from both major party from both major parties, from both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, uh, Robert Taft made a, a challenge. He tried to become the Republican nominee in 1952. He loses to uh, Eisenhower. And that's kind of the death knell of the old style conservatism. And it's not for until 64 with Goldwater and then 1980, really, because Goldwater loses badly until 1980 when you have the Republican Party once again is kind of the party of something approaching modern conservatism. So for those intervening, you know, 30, uh, almost 30 years, and really it starts even before 1952. So like 30, 40 years, conservatism is a declining force in American national party politics. Um, and that left a lot of people feeling, um, you know, ordinary folks feeling unrepresented by both major parties. They they didn't feel like they had a home in either the Democratic or Republican Party. Um, there's a, a a long history to that, but you know the the, the old style of anti New Deal conservative uh, skepticism of the state uh, had lost a lot of influence by the early to mid fifties, and so. Uh, there's an opportunity there, though, that you have people who feel a lack of representation. They don't they don't hear themselves in the media. They don't see themselves reflected in what the political parties are pushing for. And that's, uh, you know, that's uh, fertile ground for someone to build a movement out of. And so right wing radio plays a key role in building a movement out of that disenchanted, disenfranchised uh, people. Now, you mentioned the uh, movie a couple times, one of my all-time favorites, Dr. Strangelove. But it does, some of these, some of the conservative thinkers that we're talking about, they were pretty, well, General Ripper in that, in that movie, uh, yeah. with the precious bodily fluids. And we've heard about <laughs> things like, uh, uh, fluoridation. That's part of the fluoridation of water issue and all this stuff. So, so, but they, some of these people seem like that wasn't like a really off the wall parody for some of these people that you talk about. I mean, definitely a parody, but not like beyond the pale. And also this idea of, of the possibility of a, of a military coup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so there's a, a few things here. First of all, th there was a habit at the time among political scientists and kind of political commentators to write off conservatism as an intellectual system, as a, as a, you know, worldview to write it off as kind of a mere irritable impulse as a paranoid style to use uh, Hofstadter's infamous phrase. And so conservatism didn't need to be taken seriously. It was status anxiety. It was, uh, you know, just based on hate and paranoia. So that's not true and not accurate. I mean, historians have have reevaluated our, our, our how we understand the rise of the new right. It's not just status anxiety. It's not just paranoia. But that was the kind of dominant perspective on conservatism at the time. And uh, so that's reflected in there, right? So General Ripper is this irrational, um, just crazy, paranoid, conspiratorially minded idiot. He tries to destroy the, the world, basically, right? Um that at the same time, conspiracy theories are as American as apple pie. And there's right wing versions and left wing versions and opposition to fluoridation, uh, suspicion that was part of a communist plot very much was popular in, in the nascent uh, new right in the late 50s and 60s. Um, my father, he, he used to pass out pamphlets 
on the Philadelphia streets, uh, you know, he'd get paid, I think, like a dime for however many, uh, like a hundred he passed out, warning of the dangers of, of fluoridation as a communist plot. So this is very much uh, a thing that, so it's, it's, there's a seed of truth there, even in Dr. Strangelove. But Dr. Strangelove in Seven Days in May and uh, Failsafe and some of these other popular movies of the early 60s, they also reflect another set of conspiracy theories, which was uh, a popular left-wing paranoia was that the end of America would come at the hands of a right-wing military coup. And whether that was going to be because of General Douglas MacArthur, people used to worry that you know this popular uh, uh, Korean War hero would launch a military coup, or Barry Goldwater himself, who was an Air Force Re- Reserve general, or Edwin Walker, who I talk about in my book, who was worrisome enough that uh, Oswald, before shooting JFK, tried to assassinate General Edwin Walker. And when his wife said, why did you do that? Like, what gives you the right? And he said, well, if you had a chance to kill Hitler before he became Hitler, wouldn't you? Um, that, but that, that shows his fear, his fear of Edwin Walker launching a military insurrection. Uh, or later on, Curtis, Le- Curtis LeMay, who was the you know running mate for George Wallace in 68. So left-wing people were paranoid and had conspiracy theories about a right-wing conspiracy to overthrow American democracy. Um, so conspiracy theories were just in the air on both right and left at the time, and that's reflected in the uh, in the you know uh, popular culture of the time. It's, it's interesting you, you. I mean, the book introduction in particular, you're discussing like the way. I mean, there's obviously I mean a bias I think in the way that the mostly left-leaning historians have looked at this. And you pointed out Richard Hofstetter, which uh, I think is less in currency than it was, that conservatism is not actually a, a belief system. But it's also interesting because you get this idea of like the supply side uh, versus the demand side of conservative thinking, so which, you, which you write about. Uh, you write, uh, the problem is that the other half of the equation, the supply of conservative ideas has been neglected because of the fixation on demand. And that demand often would be characterized by something like, Racism is what caused them, or unease about American status, or anti—that sort of explains the demand side. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because you get that perennial theme in American politics that drives me crazy, which is like sort of summed up in the idea of astroturfing. Uh, that there are some there are some political movements that that do not arise from the bottom, but they they come down from the top, and they're sort of fake in some for some reason. I've never been able to wrap my brain around why people think that it's fake because they heard the ideas from somewhere else. Uh, but as you, as you said, this, this kind of idea is maybe one reason why it's been neglected, uh, that maybe there were actually thinkers that they were listening to, uh, that were, that were influencing them and they weren't being sort of brainwashed. Yeah. Well, there's, there's that, uh, I mean, I, I think the reason for it, both for historians and for, um, kind of contemporary observers, uh, and scholars of other kinds, it, is is pretty straightforward. It's that it's very ideologically and politically and historiographically convenient. So if you can just write off a, a mass social movement, a popular movement, as just this thing that a few a cabal of elites astroturfed or created, then you don't have to take it seriously. Um, in in the case of my book, I you know the person who I juxtapose my argument against. That my argument for why this should be taken seriously, whether you like it or approve of it or not, and there's a lot about it that I don't, but even if that's true, you should take it seriously as a mass popular public movement. Um, 
is Nancy McLean, who's persona non grata in uh, libertarian circles for her her later works, where she you know uh, does her best to to take down the public choice economics. Yeah, that's one way um, of putting it. Persona non grata. That's the, that's the nicest thing. We'll that's say the about. nicest possible <laughs> way to put that. Um, but in here, she basically she she says that like uh, it's. Uh, all conservatism at this time is is just elite politicians, Republican politicians, uh, you know, your George Wallace types, your Barry Goldwaters, maybe some elite intellectuals foisting their views on saying that they represent a silent majority, if you will, when they really don't. They are imposing their vision and their will on a bunch of rubes. Um, and I think that that just doesn't show. I mean, if you if you spend any time in the right wing archives in the fifties and sixties, whatever you think of the politics they're pursuing, it is very clear that this is a mass popular movement and not just some astroturfed campaign. What's the relationship then between this conservative movement, as you've been describing it, and religion specifically? Because so Carl McIntyre, who we we've already mentioned was a preacher and it seems like a lot of a lot of the the main characters in this came from preaching is there is there a necessary connection there or is it i mean i can also just imagine like the skills that you develop as a preacher carry over to radio pretty well yeah that's it, very true and that, that's a big contrast between this first wave of mass right-wing radio and the second i mean in the you know the rush limbaugh's is that it was much more overtly tied to religion. So yeah, Carl uh, McIntyre, Billy James Hart, uh, literally all the people I mentioned as the big guys um, all had were either clergy themselves or were very active laity. Clarence Mannion was the dean of Notre Dame Law School and very active in Catholic layman's organizations. Um, so, you know, whereas the, the modern generation, the post uh, end of the Fairness Doctrine era, um, there were, there were, I can't think of any. Are there any clergy who are major talk radio broadcasters today? I can't I can't think of any offhand. I mean, so that is a, a big contrast that we've kind of desacralized or secularized uh, the right wing radio between these two generations. As far as why, I I actually think it has something to do with, as you, you mentioned, Aaron, there. Uh, if you're trained to give sermons, you're tra- you're a trained rhetorician, you're a trained um in speaking to large audiences, I think that bled over into radio. Um, It it gave them a certain kind of leg up over folks who weren't so trained. Um, So I think there's something to that. Uh, And also they, this was a community of folks who felt, they felt written off. Um, the, the denominations they're part of, in McIntyre's case, it's this really small fundamentalist Presbyterian denomination, um, Billy James Hargis, a smaller conservative Christian church, uh, cr- Christian church's denomination. Um, they, 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 they didn't feel represented by mainstream institutions. I mean, in general, all these guys, they, they didn't trust the media, you know, math, the, the, the broader mainstream media. They didn't trust the major political parties, but they also didn't trust the big religious institutions of the time, the National Council of Churches, um, who they all thought they thought were too liberal, both politically and theologically. So it's another way in which I think conservative – we live in a time today where to be a conservative Christian of some kind, whether Catholic or Protestant, evangelical, whatever – you feel or you have felt for quite some time much more a part of uh, uh, mainstream culture. Uh, 
maybe not a perfect sense of belonging, but much more in the mid 20th century, you were weirder. The, the relative cultural and uh, distance was much broad, greater at the time than it is since the rise of the new Christian right. So I think that contributes to it as well. I've said before, uh, probably on other episodes of Free Thoughts, that you can't understand modern conservatism without understanding that it is a persecution movement uh, yeah. to this day. Uh, I think I think the Fox News anchors talk like they're distributing Samizdat in some sort of you know uh, oppressive <laughs> regime, and they're only ones who are telling you know, and, yeah. and even though they have more listeners than anyone, but it, you know, there's some reason to to at least sympathize with this possibly. Uh, especially because they were persecuted to some extent, uh, especially by Kennedy um, and, and 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 the FCC and other things. We can get uh, uh, into that, um, but I wanted to first before we get into actually what happened with Kennedy. What was the Polish ham boycotts? Oh yeah, this is fun. I I love this is my it's a favorite. Great, it's a great story. Yeah, <laughs> personal a little bit. So this is uh, the point of the story is to illustrate um, just how much influence radio broadcasters had over getting ordinary people out in the streets doing stuff, right? Doing political activism. And so what happened with the Polish ham boycott, which I had never heard of before uh, researching this book. Uh, but what it happened was it's 1962 and JFK has a plan to, uh, def- to he, he wants to accomplish a couple of things here. His his immediate goal is to peel the Eastern European, the Eastern Bloc nations, you know, the ones behind the Iron Curtain, peel them out of the Soviet zone of influence. So we're talking about like Poland and Hungary and Yugoslavia. Some of them are 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 puppet governments of the Soviet Union. Some are independent um, communist regimes. Uh, but in either case, he wants to pull them out of the Soviet zone of influence, and he figures the best way to do that is through lower is through encouraging trade rather than having trade sanctions on these countries, allowing them to trade and giving them favorable low tariffs, having free trade. I mean, where should we, we actually should be sympathetic in this story as libertarians who, who like free trade with the Kennedy approach. I mean, most libertarians thought we should have freer trade with Cuba as a way of uh, undermining communism from within as they become embedded in kind of global consumer culture. Same thing here. So if anything here, Kennedy is on the side of the uh, laissez-faire angels. So he he uses powers that Congress gives to him to unilaterally, by executive authority alone, to lower trade tariffs on Eastern European countries. Uh, ironically, those are the same powers that Donald Trump has been using the last couple of years to unilaterally raise tariffs on imports from places like Canada, lumber from Canada and steel from other countries. So there's kind of a deep parallel, uh, ironic parallelism going on there. But um, Kennedy's lowering tariffs, encouraging trade. And so stuff like Yugoslavian wicker baskets and yes, Polish hams are coming from Poland and being sold for the first time since the pre-World War II period in American department stores and grocery stores. And, uh, of course, anti-communism is still at, you know, a, a bit, a, maybe not the fever pitch of the McCarthy period in the earlier 50s, but it's, among conservatives, it's still quite high in the uh, in the early 1960s. And so they're opposed to this because they think, well, look, trade helps both parties. I mean, we, we I mean, that's a, that's a unobjectionable statement. Trade is about mutual, be, you know, mutual benefit. And so anything that helps the communist must be bad. And the idea was uh, 
uh, they they popularized the idea that every time you buy, every penny you spend on a Polish ham is a penny going towards a bullet in a Viet Cong gun. And and now, of course, that's not how the, all this works. Like, you know, it's not as if the communists, you know, uh, in Poland are then sending money to Russia, which then sends it to uh, China, which then sends it to Vietnam. It's it's, it's a silly view of, of kind of global global communist hegemony. But that's that that worked well, and that the so right wing radio broadcasters were blasting that idea over the airwaves, and that stimulated the growth, the expansion of this boycott movement, propelled by suburban housewives. Uh, and if you look at the the letters that poured in from listeners, like "Hi, I'm Mrs. So and So, Mrs. Estrelita Capo of St. Augustine, Florida. Heard about this boycott on the radio. I'm outraged. I want to look out for the the national home, like I look out for my own home. And I went to my local store, and they they would and, and told them, I, I I don't want you to sell these goods in our stores. It's you know corrupting America and helping the commies. And uh, they would hold these things called card parties. And the cards, uh, they would have like like a little like a business card sized, and on it would say things like, "Always buy your communist goods at Supergiant." And you would these groups of housewives would form boycott chapters. They would all pile in, you know, a couple dozen of them. They would descend on the offending store, Supergiant, and they would just litter thousands of these cards everywhere in the store. Every every suit coat pocket would have a, one of these cards in it. Every, you know, packaging, they'd slip, I, I have accounts of them slipping them into like toothpaste boxes, these cards. Well, this is hugely embarrassing for the department stores. They can't call the cops on them because who wants to address, you know, a chiropractor's wife, you know, some respectable suburban housewife. And uh, this was this mass movement. And ultimately, all the big major retailers in the U.S. stopped selling the goods under this consumer pressure. Congress reprimanded the Kennedy administration for its for lowering its tariffs and giving most favored trade status to these countries. And the Kennedy administration itself, uh, they it worried them. And in fact, there's I found you know secret internal memoranda where they said. Uh, this is going to be a problem for any future legislation we try to pass and our reelection hopes in 64 uh, if we don't do something about these card partying, radio broadcasting fueled protest movements. Like this is a real threat, not just, a, you know, not just something we can we can shove aside as being a bunch of silly uh, housewives. And uh, so the idea in one of these housewives, let's read one quote from one of them she you know got the store manager from A&P which is the the biggest retailer in the country at the time had like 4500 4, stores it's like the Walmart of their day uh and the local manager was forced to come apologize to her by the national office because of her complaint letter and she she wrote a letter to her broadcaster the one who told her about all of this and kind of you know uh, baked her into the movement. And she said, I can't tell you how happy it made me feel. And if you want to build a successful social movement, you give someone a t that taste of power and success, that's a great place to start. So that, that's how you build a movement. This kind of action builds movements. And it's the radio right that makes that possible. When I was reading this section, the first thing that struck me as you were, you were describing these card parties and the way that these suburban housewives would go in and kind of harass 
the staff and the managers was that um, Karens have always been with us. <laughs> yes, they are all uh, Karens. But but also you mentioned this a couple of times in there. And I thought it would be interesting to speak to briefly is is the race and gender politics of this that that these were these were white middle class women engaging in this kind of I mean, in some cases, it was illegal behavior, right? Like they could have been prosecuted for this, but they weren't. And it had a lot to do with them being middle class whites who weren't going to get arrested in the same way that if if blacks or others had been doing similar things. And so they were kind of like just to speak to that, like the way that the gender politics and the way that the race politics at the time kind of buffered them from and enabled this this movement. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, so at the same time as this stuff is happening, the same time that that you know, uh, 1962, there are a, there are a wave of civil rights protest actions happening in many of the same towns that you have these boycott Polish ham boycott actions happening, and yet there's a very different response. None of these suburban housewives involved in the Polish ham boycott had fire hoses sprayed on them or police dogs turned on them. In fact, sometimes they'd be protesting at some of the same chains, like you know, civil rights activists sitting at the counter at Woolworths at the lunch counter wanting to be served. Uh, Woolworths also was protested for for you know by the Polish ham boycott for carrying uh, Eastern European goods, and yet one leads to arrests and one doesn't. And so that shows you something of the power of race as a marker of uh, respectability in mid 20th century American politics, uh, that being white insulated these women uh, from uh, the kind of civil and criminal consequences of their protest actions. And uh, they, they use that power of respectability to the hilt. Um, and uh, yeah, the other thing that's uh, I'll, I'll mention in regard to this, a big chunk of the book um, ha- does have to do with how, um, the right-wing radio anticipated or foreshadowed what uh, political historians call the Southern strategy. And um, this refers to the way in which the Republican Party went from being um, basically a non-entity in Southern uh, politics. Uh, but there's from, still a legacy from the war. <laughs> right, a legacy from the Civil War. And then suddenly by the uh, by the 1980s, the, the transformation is complete. So basically from 1948 to 1980, the South changes from solidly Democratic to solidly Republican, overwhelmingly Republican. And um, oftentimes political historians will point to Richard Nixon and Kevin Phillips, one of his campaign advisors in 68 and 72, maybe to Barry Goldwater in 64 as the – architects of that strategy um but right-wing radio if you i make the argument in the book that all the that that they actually are the ones who helped listeners uh in the south white you know anti uh white racist white anti-desegregation listeners to imagine themselves as being a part of a different political party they had been democrats for their whole lives for their fathers and mothers lives for their grandparents lives and you know we we know as people who are uh, not completely wed to the two-party system that party identity and tribalism is a powerful force one of the most powerful i identities that there are it's hard to get people it's harder to get people to leave a political party than it is to get them to change religions and um so it's a powerful force and you have to overcome it it takes time it requires imagination and so let's say you're a southern democrat white democrat who's opposed to desegregation 
and uh, but the National Party has become the party of civil rights by the early 1960s. So you feel like you're lacking a home, but still you've been a Democrat your whole life. And now along comes Carl McIntyre. He opens up a radio station in your area and he's from New Jersey and he's a Republican, but he's saying all the things you agree with about the importance of, you know, the importance of segregation and so on. That that helps you to imagine like, oh, maybe I should consider voting for a Republican for the first time. So these all these broadcasters, um, at, there are things you'll find sympathetic about them. I mean, they're the victims of a massive government censorship campaign, but there are things that readers today will find deeply unsympathetic. I mean, they're 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 in support of segregation. They helped transform the South on the back of defending segregation, transform this, the South into a Republican bastion. So there's also stuff about them that's deeply disturbing. So let's talk a little bit about that censorship campaign because uh, it's pretty astounding. And it's something that I've said to a lot of people where, you know, you, you take people who are, I mean, for many people, like a, a, a real idol, like John F. Kennedy, um, and you say, you know, John F. Kennedy used the government to shut down radio that he disagreed with. And everyone is very astounded that that would ever do that. Of course, FDR even did stuff like that. And maybe Obama did. We can talk a little bit about that. But so, so what, what did Kennedy, he, he had a certain memo that was, that was written to like call attention to this radio and come from labor unions. Yeah. Oh yeah. Great. So the uh, Ruther memorandum. Uh, so what's going, let's put ourselves in Kennedy's shoes for just a moment. Um, the the first objective of every first term president is to become a second term president. Kennedy doesn't know he's going to get his head blown off, you know, in, in Dallas. So he's thinking about the 1964 reelection, the moment he's inaugurated, probably before. And so right after his inauguration, he calls in his allies in uh, in the labor unions. Uh, two of his allies were Walter and Victor Ruther, who were the heads of the United Auto Workers, very powerful Um uh, the biography of them by Lichtenstein is um, the most dangerous men in Detroit, the most dangerous men. Anyways, um, so they're they're very powerful, very influ- influential in democratic politics. And uh, he calls them in. Uh, he has a meeting. They have a meeting with actually Robert Kennedy, Kennedy's brother, who is the attorney general. Um, and. He says, look, whatever you can do to help in the reelection effort in 64, we would love to hear your thoughts. And in that conversation, they clearly talked about right-wing radio, uh, conservative broadcasting, uh, because the Ruthers drafted together, here's how you deal with the radio right. Here's how you deal with the threat of conservative broadcasting. And g- gave it to the Kennedy administration by the, uh, by the end of 1961. Uh, and then the Kennedy administration acted on that. But we, we call that the Ruther Memorandum. And what's in there, the, the the most significant planks of the Ruther plan was to go after them in through two executive agencies. One was to use the Internal Revenue Service to audit the living heck out of uh, right-wing radio broadcasters. So they're they're all tax exempt organizations. They they say they're you know they have an educational purpose, educating Americans about uh, you know U.S. politics and, and whatnot. Not unlike say the NAACP or um, any other uh, politically involved educational institution at the time. So they, they're tax exempt organizations, and so donations to them can be made tax uh, tax free. 
And but if you audit them during the course of the audit, uh, at least the way the IRS rules worked in this instance at the time, uh, tax donations were not going tax exempt during this active audit. There was kind of a a, pre, a presumptive um, denial of their tax exempt status while they're under investigation. So if you audit them, you can you can discourage people from donating as much money to these right wing radio programs. And ultimately, if their tax exempt status is completely repealed, uh, that's the death knell. I mean, it, they're all very heavily reliant. Most of the major uh, programs are reliant on listener donations. Their financial model looks like an NPR fund drive, but even more so because they don't get the you know Ford Foundation money or whatever that most NPR stations get. Um, so it's listener-financed radio, and if you can discourage them from donating, bam. So you, you go after them with the IRS, targeted audits, and then on the other hand, the, the second barrel of the shotgun is you go after them with the Federal Communications Commission. All stations, television, radio in the U.S. at the time, um, are licensed by the federal government. There is no uh, radio station owners have no property rights in the airwaves. That's a commons. It shouldn't have been. I know in Free Thoughts you've interviewed uh, Hazlitt, uh, Thomas Hazlitt, before about his uh, about why that was a bad idea. But that's that's the way we did things. That's the way we we divvied up the spectrum at the time. And uh, so you had to get a license from the federal government for your radio station, every couple of years, you had to renew it. And the federal communications commissions had this uh, set of regulations on the books at the time called the fairness doctrine. Um, and the, what the fairness doctrine said was, if um, as as a radio station, you had an obligation to air that you were supposed to uh, elevate the public elevate the conversation. So you should air commentary on uh, what was called controversial issues of public importance, you know, current events, politics, that kind of thing, the Vietnam War, civil rights, and so on. But when you aired people's you know commentary on those current events, it should be balanced. You should have representatives from technically all sides, but in reality, it meant both major sides, like represent both mainstream Democratic and mainstream Republican points of view. If you didn't, you were doing unbalanced editorializing, and that was a no-no according to the Fairness Doctrine, and your license could be um, revoked in, potentially. The other part of this what was called the, the um, personal attacks rule. If you criticize someone – so if I said um, LBJ, uh, he knew that nothing happened at the Gulf of Tonkin, and so he just wanted the pretext – to, you know, to send more troops into Vietnam and at the beginning of the Vietnam War, which he did, and which a conservative broadcaster um, pointed out and had a fairness doctrine complaint filed against him because uh, there was no one from the other side, no one from the Johnson administration saying, uh, no, we didn't. And so, it, again, personal, there's a personal attack rule and the fairness doctrine rule. Those two things, if you targeted them at conservative radio and not at anyone else, if you just you know, said, hey, look, conservative radio is being presented in an unbalanced way. Um, you could discourage radio stations from broadcasting as much conservative radio. Because if you broadcast the right-wing attack on the Kennedy administration or the uh, Johnson administration, uh, they had to write, they had a right of reply, which meant they could for free, so they didn't have to pay for airtime, they could reply with, they had received an airtime slot to give their response to that personal attack or to, you know, to air a response to the, to the, uh, to the attack. 
And um, so radio stations confronted by this kind of blast from both barrels of the regulatory shotgun, um, they start dropping right-wing radio hosts en masse by 1965, 66, 67. Uh, it starts earlier than that, but it's really when it picks up steam. By 67, the number of stations airing right-wing radio is down to less than half of what it had been just three years before. And um, so it is uh, the most successful government censorship campaign of the last half century. And that's a conservative estimate. It should be when you list successful government censorship campaigns like the Alien and Sedition Acts and, and the Comstock laws, this should be right up there in the pantheon of the most egregious acts of government censorship in American history. Yeah, it is astoundingly brazen and uh, interesting for the – we have – People occasionally, I've heard people, pundits on the left say Fox News should have its license stripped by the FCC is not being a news organization. They should be classified as a political organization or something like this. And usually people come out of the woodworks, even from their own party and say, okay, that's really crazy. That's, that's like what the First Amendment was designed to do was to prevent this kind of thing. That's what they do in China or like Duterte's Philippines or something, not here. But the fact that it was actually done is really and, and brazenly done uh, is yeah. really quite shocking. And they all said, I mean, the, the funny thing is uh, they said whoopsies. Uh, a lot of the actual actors, the, you know, the political operatives responsible for getting this done for the Kennedy administration, they in a sense recanted and talked to uh, uh, some journalists later on. Some of the, so some of my sources are from folks who interviewed these people later on during the Nixon administration. They realized, Oh, it's nice when we get to do it to the other side, but eventually in a, you know, in a relatively fair, free democracy, uh, the other side will get a chance to do it to us because Nixon threatened fairness, doctrine enforcement too um, against, you know, his opponents, administration out, uh, you know, administration legislation and allies. And, um, and they're like, Oh, that's right. The shoe ends up on the other foot at some point. And the same thing now, you know, there is no Fox news doesn't actually have a license. Their individual stations would have licenses, but let's say you could pull licenses to punish Fox news during the Obama administration, because you don't like their opposition to the affordable care act. Well, would that seem like quite so good of an idea uh, during the Trump administration where he is uh, publicly wished that he could strip licenses from you know, NBC News and CNN for criticizing his, his administration. Doesn't seem like quite so good of an idea when the shoe is on the other foot. How did they get away with it? Or I guess another way of asking this question is, why wasn't there a second Polish ham boycott to stop this? If the first one had shown kind of mobilizing the listeners of these stations, and there were quite a lot of them could be so politically effective. It's mm, a great question. Well, part of it's that they didn't have access to the, I mean, they didn't know if I could put it this way, I avoided ever using the C word, the conspiracy word in, in the manuscript in the book. Um, but it's because this is a case of an actual conspiracy uh, crossing multiple institutions, multiple government agencies, multiple administrations, and no one who was targeted by it knew that, that what was really going on. Um, so, uh, Carl McIntyre, he knew that stations were dropping him en masse, but he thought it was the National Council of Churches. He, that's who he blamed. And the National Council of Churches did play a role, but they were uh, – it's, it's more of a secondary role. They're not the ones who are responsible for the FCC bulking up its fairness doctrine enforcement. They're not the ones you know I have on tape 
Oval Office recordings of JFK talking about shutting them down using the tax people, right? Like he doesn't know that. I know that because, well, the, there's these archives that exist. So they got away with it in part because this was a sprawling conspiracy against the radio right, and none of the victims of this conspiracy could see more than one small piece of it. Uh, one, you know, maybe one or two institutional actors, and they just didn't have a sense of the, the full scope. Um, and some of this is also benefit of hindsight. I mean, I, um, we as, and one thing I'm thankful for after Nixon, presidents become a lot more sensitive to the kind of documents and recordings they leave behind, uh, understandably, because it brings down the Nixon administration. Uh, but Kennedy didn't know. I mean, obviously, Kennedy doesn't know that Nixon's going to lose his job because of his intemperate remarks caught on audio. So you, these guys would generate documentation proving that this thing happened. I have access to that as a historian. It's in their presidential library's files today. Um, they didn't at the time. So they got away with it because the, it was a bigger, it was a bigger conspiracy than, than right-wing broadcasters could have even imagined. And uh, because they just didn't have access to the stuff that, you know, would prove that it was going on. Was there some, some moment in your research, I assume by looking at the footnotes, you have like, you know, box 46 of the Kennedy archives, that kind of stuff. But was there some point where your jaw dropped about, about how, you know, something that was said or something that was done that you were just absolutely were shocked? Yeah. So, and the way I first approached this project, I, I was in Carl McIntyre's papers. I was, I, I, I was originally approaching this primarily as a religious historian and, it turned into a political history of people of broadcasters who happened to be religious primarily. And um, it was, so at first I was in investigating McIntyre's um, his perspective on what he thought was happening again. And he blamed the national council of churches. So I then went to the national council of the churches papers and I found some evidence they're involved. They're actually cooperating in all kinds of sketchy ways with the FCC. Uh, there's former FCC members on the National Council of Churches uh, Broadcasting and Film Board. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, illicit information sharing. It, so there's all kinds of sketchiness there. They play a role. But I realized, look, this isn't, this isn't enough. This, this isn't here. So I went to the JFK files. And I think the biggest moment was when I, I was listening to, um, they digitized Kennedy's recordings. And when I listened to that bit, there's a, and I, I describe it in the book, uh, the this moment where he's talking, he openly talks about uh, suppressing a particular conservative broadcaster using uh, the FCC and the tax people. It's a bit cloaked, but I knew enough by that point in time to realize what was going on. And then finding these uh, internal memoranda uh, about, you know, what should we do about these guys? So there was this series of like, whoa, this is a much bigger story than I even thought. This actually was an instance of government censorship, not just it, it not mere. And I, I don't mean to say this to 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 minimize the significance of of regulatory capture and rent seeking. But we're used to stories of government corruption where uh, an industry lobbies and captures a government agency because they want to, I don't know, relax oil drilling standards. So they can, you know, uh, we're used to government cap, you know, regulatory capture. This was even worse in a sense because it was not like one ancillary industry capturing a government agency. It was the executive branch ordering multiple government agencies to target 
its political opposition. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that goes on in authoritarian regimes, um, kind of the the worst kind of abuses of executive power that uh, that we can that we have in American history. And so those were the moments where I realized, wow, this is a part of something much bigger. Uh, it's interesting too because the. I mean, I was working on the issue during the Obama administration involving 501c4s and what had seemed to come, we had the lowest, lowest learner like issue, but like it seemed to come in that suddenly conservative 501c4s were getting investigated very, very strongly by the IRS in a way that they never had before. And that, I mean, again, and, and um, I, I pointed out multiple times, I was like, presidents have done this for a very long time and I would not be surprised if this came from Obama, I mean, what we might have to wait for his archive, but, but that kind of goes to this question about like this sort of you know, lessons for today, because I mean, your book, you see so many parallels to today in the book. It's like, it's kind of shocking in terms of the democratization of media, the use of radio and like what we see with the internet and then, and then the complaining about it from the other side that, that how, how horrible it is that we let these people openly communicate about BS, basically. Uh, yeah. that's, a, that's a huge concern for both political parties. Uh, and yep. and it's a, it just parallels it almost exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, a lot of these are, are problems that you know, they couldn't solve at the time, but we can't solve today. And they've only gotten worse. I mean, the it's not as if the administrative state, I mean, part of this story is possible because we expanded the power of the executive branch. The imperial presidency had never been more powerful than it was uh, in the 1960s. And so the president had the power to uh, there to abuse. Now, thankfully, with the Fairness Doctrine, we got rid of that um, uh, effectively by the 1980s. And so that power doesn't exist for Trump to abuse, though, if it, though I don't think anyone who is familiar whatsoever with the Trump administration, if he had that power, I would I, I, I would expect him to abuse it, but he doesn't. So but that's only one regard. I mean, the, the ability of the executive branch to use antitrust investigations, to use you know merger uh, uh, power over allowing mergers, corporate mergers to go forward, uh, postal rates you can manipulate postal rates to punish uh, political enemies. Just across all these different avenues, we have a government that has more potential power to be abused by internal partisan interests than even in the 1960s. There's all these tools lying around ready to be wielded against political dissent and uh, opposition. It's actually kind of remarkable. It hasn't gotten as bad as it could yet. Um, but it's, it's so part of it's a story about the rise of, of the Imperial presidency. Part of it's a story. Um, uh, yeah. Part, I, I think some of it's about political polarization. So folks in the 1960s felt like neither political party represented their interests at heart. Conservatives felt disenchanted, disenfranchised. Well, you have a lot of communities of people today, both on the left and the right, who feel like the major parties um, don't represent their views and are willing to engage in much more radical and conspiratorial and even potentially violent politics as a result. So we're seeing another – people like to think – that whatever happens in 2020, that if, if, if Trump loses in, in November, that all of this will suddenly start to calm down again, that that he is the source of our current moment of polarization and anger and distrust in institutions and abuse of power and so on. And the depressing thing, I think, that you'll that you'll realize coming away from this book 
is that that might not be so, that these are institutional and structural problems that are coming to the surface. And any individual personality is just that. It's just an individual. The structural problems are still there. And so regardless of what happens in 2020, we could be entering into another kind of moment of political and cultural disarray like the 60s and 70s and still be on the front edge of that. Oh, yeah. I th- I, I think you're entirely correct. And one reason I liked your book so much is because there's a this whole big issue about regulating the opponent's political speech for the public good, which includes campaign finance, which I work on. And now we're talking about things like Section 230 uh, for uh, communications, uh, internet communications platforms versus publishers. And it's interesting because the, for me, the polarization, when the polarization gets really bad and people are in their bubbles, one of the things that most concerns me, and I think this is relevant to your book, is you start believing that other, because you've never maybe met someone on the other side or you've never listened to the other side, you start believing that their beliefs cannot be authentic, like they, that they cannot be derived from some sort of authentic thinking through the issues, that they have to have come from some sort of duping element, right? So they, ha- they have to have come from like the corporations or the mainstream media or right-wing radio, you, you, you name it. Um, and then, then it becomes, you know, you start thinking, well, you know, since their beliefs are, you know, being, t- they're being lied to and it's creating a problem, it's really a public service to shut down the people who are lying to them, to shut down the dupers. This is not a, it's not a big deal, actually. It's a, it's like shutting down, you know, anti-vaxxers or, or shutting down Alex Jones or something like this. It's, it's a public service. And that's when I think things get scary in this, in the censorious impulse will be, is and will be manifested on both sides. Yeah, you see that in the 60s where on in both regards. So if you're a conservative in in 61 and the Bay of Pigs happens, well, it's not because in the conservative imagination at the time, it's not because Kennedy um, made took a gamble um, and that failed to try to topple the Castro regime, right? It's that, well, it must be because Kennedy wanted it to fail. He must be a communist plant. Uh, Kennedy's a, an active communist sympathizer, a Manchurian candidate, if you will. Um, and on the flip side, if you're a liberal, well, it can't be that Edwin Walker, this former general, or Billy James, or any of these right-wing people, it can't be that they actually have sincere disagreements with our policies, uh, let alone be you know potentially correct about them. No, it must be because they're paranoid it's a paranoid style this isn't a good faith intellectual movement or you know there's there's no there there it's just dangerous paranoid people so both sides i mean that should remind you of how conservatives and liberals or right and left today think about each other right barack obama wasn't just wrong about aca he must be a socialist and um conservatives they can't be right etc they must be hateful racists and so there's this um, inability to recognize the kind of fundamental sincerity of the other side or even the shared humanity. And so when I talk about party polarization, it's actually worse than that. It's a, a, a habit that's become baked into our political discourse where we dehumanize and other the other side. A question that I ask guests on Free Thoughts somewhat regularly is if you're so convinced that you're right – about whatever it is we're talking about, why do so many people disagree with you? And I want to ask you a, I guess, a variant of that, which is the story that you tell, the the double story that you tell in this book, the one of the importance of radio and then the other one of the Kennedys, is is not well known or not, I guess, 
a major part of the narrative. So when we talk about the history of the conservative movement and where where the movement came from, what grew it, we talk about things like the National Review. But as you point out in the book, the the National Review's circulation was vanishingly small compared to the number of people who tuned in every week to these conservative radio hosts, you know, both in the aggregate and even just like individual radio hosts. But but this doesn't get the the significance of conservative radio doesn't tend to play much into the history of the conservative movement, at least up until kind of the rise of, as we said, like Rush Limbaugh and then Tea Party movement and so on. Uh, and then similarly, like the Kennedy story is is shocking as you tell it, but it's shocking in part because so few of us have ever heard about it. And and even people who probably have heard about it, it doesn't factor in. It's not like a big part of the history of the Kennedy campaign or Kennedy administration. So why is that? Why are these two stories so either unknown or underplayed? Yeah, two. that's a great question. There's two uh, two interlocking reasons here, So, and dependence on the direction you're looking at the story. From the direction of, say, the Kennedy administration, or let's say broadly speaking, the left, why, why isn't this more, you know, heard of in, in kind of a left-wing narrative of the 1960s? The Kennedy administration obviously doesn't want this to be known because it's embarrassing. I mean, people – censorship, you're the bad guys if you're a censor. And uh, so they obviously have an interest um, in in not publicizing their efforts. And uh, it, none of this was public. It's only because it is in their papers, which then are made public several decades after Kennedy's death and after the administration. Um, so that – in that direction, it's because uh, this is a kind of an embarrassing thing that happened – the the other thing I'll point to is that uh, – oh, and, and on that point, they're in a certain kind of narrative about American history, and I, I calling it a left-wing narrative is is problematic. But let's say a, a kind of broadly centrist, liberal, or left-wing narrative of American history. When censorship comes up, the, the people doing the censoring are right-wing people. It's like, you know, industrialists and, you know, corporate – overlords and churches and pastors and fundamentalists, they're the ones who use their power to censor the people. Vox Populi, right? Like um, that's the narrative you're used to. This cuts against that. Here we have the censored being people they don't like. I mean, there, there's kind of a natural left-wing sympathy and understandable sympathy for the underprivileged and the marginalized for the people in the kind of a generic sense. And, um, this cuts against that. It doesn't work that way. The and and so I think it's also that's why it tends to get overlooked. Um, <clears throat> as far as why on the right at this moment is forgotten, it's because it's deeply embarrassing. These are again, there are folks who we'd be embarrassed. Uh, you know, right wing people today would be embarrassed to think of them as part of their lineage, their kind of intellectual or movement lineage. Part of that's because they're racist. I mean, they're segregationists. Um, they're also heavily conspiracy minded. So again, they were anti-communist, but anti-communist in the way that was, you know, there's communists hiding in every bush. Um, that so there, there's John Birch Society kind of, and so part of the the success of the new right over the next couple of decades, and Bill Buckley and National Review play a role in this, is to marginalize this conspiratorial minded. Um, faction of the right uh, and present a more respectable mainstream facing, you know, intellectually respectable version of, of the right. 
And that's good if you want to build a successful mainstream political movement, but it leads to a temptation to do bad history, which is to retroactively write them out of your movement, even though they played a role in the movement. Um, just as if you know you wanted to take a photo of a family <clears throat> of a family get together, and uh, maybe the you know your your drunk uncle who shouts random racist embarrassing things, maybe he even has like a a swastika tattooed on his forehead. You, you might want to Photoshop him out of the family image, right? Like it's it's embarrassing, and so retroactively changing the history. Um, or how you remember the history to make yourself seem more respectable by comparison is a is a way to do that. This is in part because our our history of the origins of the new right of fusionist conservatism <clears throat> rely very heavily on George Nash, who wrote a book called The Conservative Intellectual Movement since 1945, which is good at what it does. But what it d- does is tell a story of a handful of intellectual elites like Buckley um, and tell does not at all tell the story of right-wing radio. Not a single one of these broadcasters shows up in his history of where the new right comes from. And doing so allows uh, the right to look more respectable, uh, more reasonable, less paranoid, less conspiratorial, more palatable, less racist. And uh, Nash does this, of course, in part because he is himself conservative. He's a move, right-wing movement builder. He's part of the kind of the movement, if you will. And uh, he writes the book. I mean, at one point in time, the book was published by ISI, I think, Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Um, so he's writing it for, you know, representing his a movement that he's part of for an audience composed of a movement that, that you know, that, that movement and for publishing with institutions that are part of that movement. So um, I think that's had a an outsized effect on how the right remembers its own past, its own history. And I think that's a mistake. And we know that's a mistake. Why? Because these people never went away. Um, they're back. I mean, th- this, this point of view represented by the kind of conspiratorial minded quasi like racist, even anti-Semitic um, populist right. It's back in full force, right? That the, the ethno nationalist populism is now, arguably the the largest faction within the Republican Party today. And it's because they never fully left. We shoved them in the closet, right? Shoved them in the closet. Um, but they were always there and they're, they're back in the driver's seat today. And part of the reason why that took everyone by surprise was because they didn't know their own history. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.